You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Ezra chapter 4, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 5 this morning, so follow along with me. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel. They approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esar Haddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius. King of Persia. So this is the word of God for the people of God um, this morning. Uh, I'm going to ask a blessing over his word, and as I do, if you would, even in your place, pray for me. Um, I think it's needed. Let's bow our heads. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And uh, Lord, I, I just ask that you would, that you would come now and, and speak to each of us. By the power of your spirit, through your word, Lord, I, I know that you are sovereign, you are good, you're patient, you're kind, and you're powerful. I know that your word is powerful. And Father, I, I know it, 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 it drives me nuts that you would choose imperfect men such as myself to stand and proclaim your word. still not quite sure about the mystery of how that works. And yeah, I do know this. I do know each one of us walks in here this morning with something um, going on deep inside of our hearts and our souls. And what we need is to hear from you and to have the gospel proclaimed to those dark, dirty, broken, rebellious places of our heart. We need our hearts to be renewed and refreshed by you. And we need the love of our hearts, the desires of our hearts to be transformed. And so God, I pray that you would come and do just that in us this morning. And I trust you to do it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Hey, so uh, this, uh, this passage that I just read uh, for us this morning is kind of an interesting portion of our study through the book. Um, everything leading up to this has felt kind of exciting because the, uh, Israel has been set free from 70 years of captivity, right? And, and it's, it's, been, it's been kind of miraculous, right? And they had this big worship gathering once they got there and... and um, and they started rebuilding the, the foundation of the temple, and, and uh, 
What you expect next is for them to start rebuilding the temple that was destroyed years earlier, right? After 70 years in captivity, they're now free to do what God's called them to do, to start building. And uh, there was a hint last week in our text of not necessarily, you could say opposition, but it was definitely very subtle in, 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 if you remember how we studied through last week and realized that some of the folks that were in the crowd as they had this massive worship gathering were um, they were complaining, right, more than anything else. They, they weren't happy with what they were seeing. And so they had kind of this complaining heart, and they were weeping instead of worshiping. Because the work that God was doing in rebuilding the temple now was never going to match the beauty and the glory of the old physical temple. And, and uh, their focus was off. Right? In, the, in the midst of all that mess, their focus was on something physical rather than something spiritual. And this is, um, I think this is uh, part of the struggle for us often because we live in a very physical world, right? And, uh, and yet God, God is consistently wanting to, and I think the last question I asked last week is, what, what, what is God wanting to build in you? I think through you is important. But in you, what is God wanting to build right now? So we naturally come into chapter 4, and what do you see? You see a bunch of adversity. You see a bunch of opposition to what God is wanting to build. You see a bunch of conflict. And you think about those three uh, themes just for a minute, right? Adversity, opposition, and conflict. These are things that are absolutely central to the Christian faith. I mean, if you espouse to or buy into some kind of prosperity teaching that tells you that after you start following Jesus, if you just have enough faith, everything's going to be great now, then maybe at that point, if that's what you buy into, then, then maybe adversity, opposition, and conflict have no room in your theology. But the reality is, I think if you, if you study the Bible enough, I think you'll see these three things all over the scriptures. Adversity, opposition, conflict. Like from what I can tell and from what I see and from my experience of following Jesus over the years, is it like from the moment that we become a Christian, from that moment, regardless of how you believe that moment began, whether it's because you surrendered the knee or because God sovereignly reached down or somewhere in between, from that moment forward until the moment that you and I stand in front of our Father in heaven, what you and I have now been immersed in, or what we've been brought into, is a centuries-old war. Right? Between the adversary, our adversary, God's adversary, Satan. Commonly, if you were to interpret the name Satan throughout Scripture or the devil. It's, it's actually the Satan. It's, it's a title more than it's a name. The thing that I love about that acknowledgement is that our enemy, who's been beaten by Jesus at the cross, doesn't even get a name. The only thing he gets is a title. And it, and it simply means adversary. That centuries-old war that's been going on in the invisible around us that we got launched into the moment that we became Christians, Christ's followers, 
That centuries-old war has been going on for a long time, right? And it's been going on as our Heavenly Father um, labors. He's the one who labors and works to build His kingdom amidst what I found this phrase this week to be fantastic, amidst enemy-occupied territory. But that's what our Father, that's what God has been doing for centuries Laboring to build his kingdom. He is the king of. He is the ruler of. Christ is the ruler of. In the midst of enemy-occupied territory. That, 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 that just brings a, a sense of seriousness and sober reality to the idea of being Christian. When you think about this text in front of us, what this text is describing is it's really fairly simple, okay? There, there's a lot of names and, and some words that are like almost unpronounceable. There's history behind this text that we could spend time in um, describing who these people are that come to try to offer help and so on and so forth. And some of that could be very thought-provoking. Helpful, I don't know, but thought-provoking. Maybe helpful, too. But what this text really describes is the, the opposition, number one, and the discouragement, number two. That's, that's really what's going on in the text, is the opposition and the discouragement that uh, Israel is facing as they are then laboring to build a temple right in the midst of their enemies too, right? God is just revealing himself and his work through this story to us so that we might apply it to our hearts and lives and where we're at right now this week. And in fact, in the opening words of the text, you might notice a word, right? Referring to Israel's enemies as what? Adversaries. Referring to them as their adversaries. And I was thinking about this and praying through the best I could this week, and it reminded me of what Peter said. Some of you who were here for our first Peter series would remember what Peter said about our adversary, right? What did he say? He said, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith. So how do you resist him? Being firm in your faith. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. It's so easy. And this is what Satan loves to do. loves to cut you out of the flock a little bit, make you feel, make you think that you're the only one facing this or that. And in the midst of that, self-pity, shame, doubt, despair, whatever, sets in. And pretty soon... Next thing you know is you're off in la-la land, you know. And a few moments, a few weeks, a few days, a few years later, you go, man, what, what happened? I, I used to be doing so well, and here I am way over here now, right? This is what Satan loves to do. It's good to know that we can resist him and stand firm in our faith. We can know that there are others who have faced the same suffering, that we are not alone, that there is a family of redeemed brothers and sisters who face the same suffering throughout the world. So this is why I kind of started off by saying that 
adversity, opposition, and conflict are central to the Christian faith. And we could spend a lot of time just kind of doing a theological pass-through of the scriptures. Um, but I think it's true. I think it's the reality. The kingdom that we belong to, you belong to Jesus. The kingdom that we belong to, it's being advanced, you might say. Not built, planted, however you might put it. It's being advanced into enemy territory. And our enemy, our enemy, Satan, the devil, right? Now, he's an ancient adversary of our king. He's been playing games with God's people since the very beginning. Go back to Genesis 3, right? From the very beginning, Satan has been playing games with God's people. He's a crafty adversary. He's a crafty enemy. At times, Christians give the devil way too much credit. And the flip side of that is, I think it may be C.S. Lewis maybe that kind of pushed this thought forward, that other times we, we don't give him enough credit. <laughs> um, The reality about Satan, I think, and what this text, I think, would show us is that if he can't infiltrate the kingdom with some kind of subtle manipulation and get you to be friends with him, so to speak, um, then I think what he'll start doing is just start blasting away with some kind of full frontal assault, right? You experience those kind of two prongs? I mean, that, that's really what the enemy does in our text in front of us today, Right? The first thing the enemy does is, is tries this subtle manipulation tactic. And what they do is they basically try to offer friendship. So some friendly help, you, you might say, right? And then the second thing they do when that doesn't work is they shift into this full frontal assault mode. Guns out, guns blazing, um, just full on assault. And they're sowing discouragement and fear and frustration. When I think of those three words that pop up later in the text, fear, discouragement, frustration, I mean, is there not one of us in this room that couldn't say that over the last week we experienced one of those emotions? Fear, discouragement, frustration. My, my hope is as we work through this that God would encourage us, strengthen us, and strengthen our resolve. Uh, my, my prayer and my hope as we work through just looking and thinking about these things is that God would lead us to the foot of a bloody cross, that he would show us how powerful his word is, that he would maybe lead us into a season of prayer together where we would might seek communion in the presence of a good and patient and kind father, no matter what's going on, right? Look, think with me first about this first um, kind of portion of the text, verses one through three. Enemy does what? Offers friendly help. Right? Offers friendly help. In those first four verses of our text, you see the enemies, Israel's enemies, adversaries. Israel's enemies, uh, basically here, the Israel has returned. They're, they're rebuilding the temple of God. What do they do? They try this little subtle approach. They want to offer some friendly help, Right? Thankfully, thankfully, Israel's leaders, they do see right through their enemies' subtle 
approach. They're, they're subtle manipulation, right? And the way, the way Israel's leaders handle it, I think, is really good right here. They, they refuse the help, right? Uh, they say, hey, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. We alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel. That's verse 3. Like, when you read that, yeah, I just, for me, I get a sense of like, yeah, they're resolute, they're standing strong. See, in this instance, what you see is God's people did a really great job of standing firm. They, they resisted the temptation to receive help from their enemies. Now, the subtle, uh, friendly approach, I'm sure it's a tactic we're probably all familiar with when we think about our own journey, our own walk with God, right? I think that we probably face little instances of this every day as we try to decide whether or not to do this or to do that or to act this way or to act that way, to think this way or think that way or pay attention to this emotion or that desire, right? I think, I think it is kind of a constant thing uh, throughout the day. And I think the hard part, I think the hard part is learning to understand that whatever benefits are promised by such a friendship, you think about this story, what would the benefits promised be? It would be building the temple faster, right? I mean, if you think about the, the benefit being promised by aligning with an enemy in this instance, the, the temple would get built faster. Uh, the folks who were complaining in the last chapter that it would never be good enough would at least be happy that it got done fast enough. But Israel's leaders don't cower down to that. And I just think it reminds me that whenever I start thinking that maybe if I just cut a corner here, or maybe I give in to sin over here, or the, the subtle promise there is that it's going to somehow help me, right? I'm going to somehow feel better in these moments. Um... I'm not going to feel the pain or the fear that I've been feeling and, and, and so on and so forth. There's going to be some kind of subtle benefit that is promised. But if I can remember this principle that those benefits that are promised by my enemy, they will not come true. And in fact, what's going to happen is there will be a result that is adverse to what God wants to do in my life. If I can hang on to that, I think it's helpful. Right? When you think about it, when you think about some things like the stress of building a healthy marriage, or, or you think about the pain of being single, or you're, I mean, just different things, right? Parenting your kids, maybe especially through rebellious seasons, um, finishing high school, trying to finish college. Like, life in the physical realm is not easy. Like, that's never promised. In fact, the opposite is typically promised. Um, we look at other people's lives, and I think we think sometimes, man, I wish I had it like them, but we don't know what's really going on in their lives, right? There's, there's subtle manipulative tactics that Satan deploys in the midst of all of the physical realm for us. Um, think about maybe starting a new job and how hard that can be, or, or trying to rebound after a severe loss, like I think of our friends, the Nelsons, this week, um, and their loss. How do you rebound from that, right? That's, if that's not full frontal assault, I don't, I don't know what it is. There's nothing manipulative about what happened in their lives this week with the loss of their daughter. 
But you come back and you think about this manipulative tendency that Satan has, our enemy. Like I, when, you're, when, you're, when you're trying to work through the different things in your life, marriage, building, living single, working through college, whatever, when you think about that, you think of how physically, emotionally, financially, I think about how relationally or spiritually exhausting that can be. It just can be exhausting, right? And in those moments, I think Satan tries to step in. Our enemy tries to step in, right? He tries to say, hey, what, what, what about this? Wouldn't this help? Wouldn't you let me help you a little bit? Um, I mean, there's easy things we can point out that he tries to do. I mean, there's things I think we kind of know to keep an eye on, but many of us have struggled with some of these things, right? Down a 12-pack, look at a bunch of porn all night, vegging out on TV or bad media, you know, get, get stuck on the computer and just, just whatever it may be, spending too much, you know, going and buying a bunch of stuff. There's all sorts of things. Might be gossiping. Whatever your kind of go-to, your bent, you know your bent, Right? Whatever your bent is to kind of placate or relieve those pressures or those feelings, in the moment we are promised that we're going to be able to cope well with that. But the reality is that behind those subtle temptations, that's, there's an enemy there. And that enemy is seeking to steal, to kill, and to destroy the work that God is wanting to do inside of each of us. That's what's happening. We live in the midst of this spiritual realm, right? And I, I think in, in those moments, what, I think what we've got to ask God for, what we have to practice, is a spiritual insight, spiritual wisdom, spiritual discernment, the courage to be able to say, hey, you, you actually don't have anything to do with what God is wanting to build inside of me. You have nothing to do with this. I think I'll stay the course without your help. You have to be able to say that. Frustrating thing is when I kind of come to this point in my thinking on this, the frustrating thing is what's like that's on one side of my brain. The other side of my brain is like screaming at me like this, like, yeah, but you know all the times that you didn't say, no, I'll go do this alone. I don't need your help. Like, anybody else kind of wrestle with that? Like, I know what the right thing is to do here. The right thing is to say, Nope, don't need it. The problem is, is I know all the times, not just in my life, in the past, you know, I, we do really good at like kind of blowing things up, making it sound like that was back in Joe's old days, 20 years ago before he got saved, you know? Like I, that, and that's not what I'm saying. I don't think any of us should ever just stay there anyways. You know, you know what I mean? Because it's like, no, I actually lived a, a life this last week and if I could stand here, and if I could make a list for you on a screen that would tell you how many times I didn't do that, where instead of saying, nope, I, I, I got nothing to do with what, you got nothing to do with what God's building inside of me, I'll handle this without you. If I could tell you the times I fell, I think it would, it would horrify you, right? Horrifies me. I, I, I admit that before even stepping into the pulpit today, I, I'm like, I... I shouldn't even preach this message. I don't, I don't even feel worthy. I don't. When I think about the kind of resolve and the kind of courage that I need, um, I think about Jesus. 
this is a beauty of studying through scriptures throughout the week with other men. Um, think about Jesus facing down our old adversary, right? Devil. Uh, he's in the desert of temptation. It's Matthew chapter 4. We were there this last week, a couple of us guys. When I think about Jesus in that moment, I'm just like, yes. Yes. Jesus, like, had the most perfectly resolute courage any man has ever had. I, Jesus is a man's man all the way through. I just, man, I, I look at him and I go, yes. I, dude's weak after 40 days of fasting, right? I, I don't know about you, but I go 40 minutes without eating and I'm weak. <laughs> you know? Okay, so <laughs> 40 days? I, I, Baptists should probably do more fasts throughout the year and maybe less family feasts. But um, I admit I'm not that spiritual. <laughs> Forty days and nights of fasting after that, Satan comes to Jesus, starts tempting him. Hey, man, I could help you. This would be helpful, right? It's a subtle manipula manipulation factor going on. If you do the study in, in Matthew 4, you know what you... What you see is Satan's, yeah, he's, he's tempting Jesus, right? What's he offering? He's offering a couple of basic things, physical nourishment, you know, um, offers him protection. If you just do this, you, you, you'll receive some protection. Uh, power. He's tempting him with those kinds of things. Physical nourishment, protection, power. And Jesus, what does Jesus do? Jesus resists, right? He does exactly what Peter tells us to do. Resist the devil firm in your faith. He resists him perfectly. I mean, perfectly. He does what I can't do, certainly on my own, and don't do as often as I really wish I did. He resists the, the subtle, manipulative advances of his enemy. How does, how does he do it? If you read Matthew 4 and you read that instance, he does it by continuously standing on what God's word says. Interestingly, side note, going back all the way to the beginning, this is what Satan has been doing from the beginning. Getting God's people to question, would God really say that? Did God really say that? It's not really even just necessarily questioning God's word. Underneath of that, if you want to you know some of the root of that, it's not just questioning God's word. It's actually questioning God's character. God really say that? Yeah. W would he really come through? Does he really love you? Like, could he, this list over here, could, could he really love you? Like, he knows all that, right? Like, he'll speak like these subtle truths and then twist some lies in there. Not necessarily in the form of like this blatant stuff, but at times very, very subtle rather than saying, God couldn't really love you. Could he, could he really love you? Maybe he'd love you more if you were better. You know? That's what Satan does. And been doing it for so long. Jesus stood against that by standing on God's word. And similarly, like if you look back at this text in Ezra, what do you see? 
Israel in these first few verses, in, in a sort of a way, really does resist those subtle advances of their enemy by standing on God's word, right? Because in, in some regard, they even quoted, in some regard, they're standing on God's word, the word of God <laughs> that came through the mouth of a pagan king earlier, right? They, they recite that back. So in some regard, they, they do really well in this. The reality is the enemy never stops. <laughs> Just when you think it's over, you're like, man, I got through that. Thank you, Lord. And you know, side note, um, it's interesting. When you face down one sin, this is, this is a principle that when you face down one sin, it's like, oh, thank you, Jesus, I got through that. And, and you don't even notice there's this little space over here that starts creeping back up. Sometimes it's like, yeah, I got through that. I flipping nailed that. Spiritual pride starts growing up over here. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm trying to work through some others real fast, just on the fly in my mind. You know, like, ooh, I, I nailed it. I got through that. And, and then your, your kid does something they weren't supposed to do. And you're like, Rawr! you know, you're like trying, you know, yelling at your kid. And you're giving kid no mercy, right? And, Man, there's probably lots of ways I could try to put this together, but that's something to watch out for in the midst of that. The enemy never sleeps, okay? The good thing here is this. Our God never sleeps either. So we can take courage in that. <coughs> but oftentimes what happens, and you see this in the text, if the subtle, kind of friendly side of our enemy doesn't necessarily work to get us, then it just shifts into full frontal assault mode, Right? This is, this is two-fisted, guns out. He's coming after you, and you know it. Like, you, if there was any question in your mind whether the, what was happening previously was just this subtle thing, you know that you know when the full frontal assault happens. Like, you know. You just go, yep. Yeah, that's not good. Satan's in the grave. They're after me. Um, this season's going to suck, right? You just, you know that. That's kind of what happens next in the last couple of verses. And what we see in these last few verses is how the enemy sows discouragement, fear, and frustration. I'm sorry, I kind of pointed that out at the beginning. Discouragement, fear, and frustration. If you look at the last two verses with me, what do you see? Uh, you see en uh, Israel's enemies, right? Tried the passive thing, now they try the massively aggressive thing. Uh, they go and they bribe some of the city officials. Uh, to put a whole bunch of pressure on the Israelites. And uh, in the midst of doing that, then it causes all of this discouragement, all this fear, all this frustration. And the sad thing here that we see here is if they kind of did pretty good in a passing grade in the first part, in this one, the tactic works. And it brings the building of the temple to an absolute screeching halt. So, I mean, again, if you, if you tie this into last week where you've got some people in the community that are already like, ah, oh, man... This whole building project, it stinks anyway. It's not going to be anywhere near as good as that. So you got that going on, right? You have this group of people who just, they nothing will satisfy them. And then, uh, and then you've got all the external pressure. It's internal external pressure going on for the Israelites. And, and the building process on the temple comes to a halt for the next 17 years. 17 years. See, it's one thing to 
resist the subtle advances of our enemy um, as he tries to pollute the work of God in and through us. Just the, it's, it's one thing to, to resist that subtle peace. But I think it's an entirely different thing to withstand that full frontal assault mode that brings about all that intense discouragement, all that fear, all that frustration. We think about, when you think about those three words, discouragement, fear, frustration, when I think about those, I, I think about hopelessness, I think about how crippling it is, I think about how exhausting it is, right? Like discouragement, the longer you are discouraged, more, the more hopeless you feel, right? Um, the longer you face fear or experience extreme fear, the more crippled you are. I, I had a, most of you know, some of you know, um, when it, and some of you laugh and you make jokes and it's fine, but I have this really intense, serious phobia of snakes. It's, it's a literal phobia. I'm going to tell you a couple stories and there's a reason, there's a reason I'm so afraid of them. I, one, had a cousin chase me around with a little, a snake when I was about five held me down, held the snake over my face. Two, was it a party back before Jesus? Not that I don't still party. We'll forget that. Back in my partying days before Jesus, I was at a party and, and there was a guy that had like a 20 foot long python or bow constrictor and he, he came at me. I pulled my gun on him and backed out of the house. Um, those two experiences have created a, a crippling phobia. Um, so I had this instance with a snake earlier this week and it mid jacked with my whole week. Really did. Just that's I. I feel like an absolute wussy. Even and it's stupid. Feel I feel stupid. See where when you then you experience fear and it cripples you. And when I say I feel stupid about that, what is that? That's called shame. That's what that is. The shame is so hard to chase down. Uh, guilt is bad, for sure. Because guilt is like, man, I can't quit doing the bad things I'm not supposed to do or can't do the right things I'm supposed to do. That's kind of guilt. Um, shame is more like, I am the bad thing. That's the difference. Shame is a very powerful motivator. It's my, one of my favorite <coughs> sayings. I'm way off track now. I'm sorry. I'm, this is more personal. Hopefully it helps you guys. I'm just openly processing and receiving counseling on the, po on the stage in front of you. <laughs> Heard a a guy say years ago, you guys have heard me repeat this, that church planting or pastoring is like um, getting a gallon of shame and drinking it in the morning, filling up your five-gallon bucket, drinking that all day, going home to your family, drink it up again. And uh, you know, I, I was early in my ministry, I remember hearing that, and I was like, man, it's so true. Chasing down shame and figuring out where shame is at, um, definitely a, uh, a journey. Love to talk with any of you more about that. <laughs> Need to get moving forward, right? Fear. Fear can be crippling because it brings up shame and guilt. It does. Frustration. I don't know if any of you have ever just like walked through a whole day where you're just frustrated. You know, tire blew on my car. Really need to use the restroom. And day starts off really frustrating. You know, wake up and the kid's in the bad mood or spouse in the bad mood. And you're just frustrated. And then all day it's like one thing after the next. And you're just super frustrated about everything. And you get home and you're just like, I've got nothing. You know, frustration can be absolutely exhausting. And I think about the Israelites. These are the, these are the three words that, that are used to describe where they're at in these moments, right? When this full frontal assault happens, when, 
when the leaders of the community in the city um, kind of turn on them, and they're also facing all this internal pressure with the people that are complaining and whining because it's just not good enough for you, um, and they, they crumble. I'm sure many of you have probably experienced these three emotions. I'm assuming maybe even as, as early as this morning, right? Trying to get kids in the car, just trying to get in your car and go to church. You think about life, you just you step back even just from this morning, you just think about like the rhythms of life, right? And you think about the rhythms of this text, kind of lay them side by side. Like, you got seasons of life where you feel like you're on top of the mountain, right? Like, nothing can touch you. Like, things are going great. Like, job's great. Paycheck's great. Marriage, check, great. Friendships, man, I got, I got good friends, right? Finances are doing pretty well. And then you maybe you experience some kind of seasons where even if your old sin patterns, you know what your sin pattern is, right? All of us instinctively kind of know deep down inside, yeah, that's my main thing. Uh, you probably experience moments, or maybe even long seasons of victory, and you're, nothing can touch you. You're like, yeah, I'm at the foot of the cross, and everything is good, and Jesus is my hero, and I'm singing the old song, Jesus is my superhero. You know, you used to sing that in kids' church, and you, you're, that's where you're at. Like, it's good. And then all that stuff's in the rear view, and then something maybe catastrophic happens, Right? Like the friend betrays you, or job fails, or you lose somebody close to you, your kids rebel, go off their rockers, you, you have this expectation you're going to have a kid, and you lose the baby. You have a daughter who's 19, and she gets hit by a car. <laughs> These are full frontal attack assault moments where you just go, and you stand up, and, you, and all you can see around you is like smoke. Bombs just went off. Right? I was fond of saying in some seasons of our life that there were there was images of a uh, old war movie, and for some reason I can't place the name of it, it doesn't matter, I guess, but just images of an old war movie where they're just fighting to get through the trees and you know, one of the guys watches his buddies get their legs blown off and the, the look of absolute devastation on his face. And the counseling that he needs to go through afterwards. And I just, I think of, that's what this moment to me in this text kind of feels like. It's been going great, had some bumps in the road, people complaining, and then, and suddenly, it's, it's, it's done, and they feel completely discouraged, absolutely afraid, and they're frustrated. And those kinds of moments, man, they can leave marks on your life for years to come, right? I don't know, maybe if you're in that moment now or if you've been through that moment in your life or where you're at today, um, it can leave its mark on your life for years to come. It did that for Israel, right? Like, Israel didn't begin rebuilding. I mean, it's, it's, when you read a book in the Bible, it's hard to, like, place all the timelines, and that's why it's important to do deep-dive studies, and when you think about it, it's, it's, it's 17 years or more before they start rebuilding again. For 17 years, Israel basically copes with their discouragement and their fear and their frustration. How? They're going on about their daily lives, building their lives, getting jobs, building houses. And they seemingly completely forget the work that God wanted to do in and through them. Have you ever found yourself there? Where you, you kind of wake up 
like uh, in a morning or there's a moment somebody confronts you, says something to you, whatever it is, and you're like, whoa, I really, I was on top of the mountain just right over here, and then there's this valley that I didn't even know I was in that, and I'm awake on the other side, and I'm like, how, how was there 17 years there? <coughs> or 17 days, or 17 months, or whatever amount of time it was for you. You know, you know what that's like, right? Um, I, maybe you're there now. I don't, I, don't, I don't know. Or maybe, maybe you could look at this a couple different ways. You're either there now, you're in that valley. God knows, right? Or you're just right on the other side. This morning is the wake-up call for you. And you're like, oh, he smokes. This is where I'm at, right? Or another way to look at this is you're on the front edge of that, and this sermon's a warning. This sermon's a warning meant to help you stand firm. Watch out. Your adversary, the devil, is coming after you always. And what might be coming next is an absolute full frontal assault. Don't let go. Hang on tight, right? So it could be one of those three things. And maybe that's the takeaway from this sermon. Totally in the moment. Maybe that's the takeaway. Maybe that's what you need to ask God in prayer this week is, where am I at? Am I on the front edge? Is this a warning and a wake-up call before the storm hits me? Or am I in the middle of it? I need to be waked up, woke up now so I can get out of here. Or am I just kind of coming to the other side and I need to wake up because it's been 17 flipping years, right? <coughs> maybe, maybe that's the takeaway. Some of the takeaway that, that we could take home and go, okay, God, we're... Where are we at in relationship together? The way, the way I envisioned kind of uh, concluding and, and closing things up um, was just kind of asking this question, how, how do I actually withstand the enemy? How do I actually withstand the enemy when he's coming after me, right? And really the first thing that I want to do as we kind of, as I try hard to like land the plane... I think the first thing that I want to try to do is just to encourage you with this truth. It's the truth of the gospel, right? Because what does the gospel always remind us of? It reminds us that even when we epically fail in the face of that seemingly subtle or, 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 the, or, the, or, the, or the absolute full frontal attacks from our old adversary, the devil, when we just absolutely biff it, what we have is we have a Savior who empathizes with us, Okay? He, he doesn't, it's not like he's just standing back like, oh, shame on you, look at you. He empathizes with you because he faced it. And just because he walked through it perfectly doesn't mean he looks at you with that shame and guilt face. He looks at you with empathy. Empathy is different than sympathy. Sympathy is, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry you're walking through, I've never walked through that. That's sympathy, and we all need to have that. Um, empathy is like, oh man, I've experienced that. I've experienced devastating loss, or I've experienced the hurt and the pain or the fear and the discouragement. Say, Jesus looks at you and I with absolute empathy because he not only experienced that subtle attack from Satan and he absolutely won in the desert, right? But he also faced the full frontal assault of Satan, our adversary, at the cross of Calvary. You think of a day where all the entire war like comes to a pinpoint. The cross of Calvary is absolutely devastating, but Jesus was completely victorious. And here's the crazy thing. like When I apply that and I start thinking about that, you can see how excited I get about that, right? It starts to do something inside of my heart. All those pictures of the last week or the last two months or whatever starts to dissipate because all I can see in front of me is my Savior winning the fight. That's all I can see, right? 
See, the crazy thing is when you and I trust in Christ's work at the cross, when we trust in his work at the empty tomb, you and I receive not only the Father's forgiveness, which blows my mind anyways, the idea of the Father's forgiveness, that he would wipe the slate clean, that whole sheet full of listed stuff, my Father doesn't see it ever because of Jesus. Because Jesus' blood on that sheet washed it white as snow. Not just that sheet, but me and you. If you're trusting him, right? So, so we don't just receive his forgiveness. We also receive the son's perfection. And, and here's the crazy thing, too. Like, the list keeps going on. It's like, man, that wasn't enough. What? I get more? I, I also get this infilling, powerful presence of the Holy Spirit to then withstand the advances of the enemy. Right? I mean, what, what took those 12 disciples who all left Jesus on the day of his crucifixion, the night of his crucifixion, what caused them to then come back and be the men that they were to lead the church through what they led it through and then to die? The Holy Spirit, right? Living inside of them, the very presence of God. And I think when you, when you think about Ezra, right? Make the connection to Ezra real fast. When you recognize that the physical temple in Ezra, all it was is a foreshadow of the spiritual temple that's called the church. You and I are part of it, right? We are living stones held together by this mortar, and the mortar is Jesus, crucified, risen, returning. And so we can get knocked down, for sure, by these vices of Satan, sin, death, but you can always get right back up. Why? You can always get back up in, in this this dusty arena that we call life, right? This, this life of advers adversity, this life of opposition, this life of conflict. You get up by the power of the gospel. Tie in Ephesians chapter 6 with the armor of God, right? It's not flimsy cardboard that we use in kids' church, so it's fine to use the images, right? Our, our armor is real, our armor has a face, and his name is Jesus. Every piece of that armor is Jesus himself. He is truth. He's the author of faith. He is the word, right? He is our righteousness. He is the gospel of peace. On and on and on. He is the armor. So the way that we put the armor on is to be in the presence of Christ. And so whether it's been 17 seconds or 17 years... What I can be assured of, what you can be assured of this morning is that Jesus is ready and waiting for you. We read that passage earlier. I stand at the door and I knock. And oftentimes we use that passage as an evangelism passage, like, hey, Jesus is knocking on the door, you should get saved. Actually, it's a misapplication of the text. I'm not saying you can't do that, but if you go back and you read the text, he's actually talking to Christians. <laughs> it's actually who he's talking to. Talking to sleepy Christians that... He's ready, he's waiting. Wants us to cling to him, wants us to clothe ourselves in him as we face down those enemies that he's been victorious over. Adversity, opposition, and conflict, they're central to the Christian life, okay? And the last thing I want to say is this. Adversity, opposition, and conflict are central to the Christian life, but the weapons of our warfare, uh, they're not 
physical weapons. They're spiritual weapons. They are mighty for pulling down the presence of the enemy. <coughs> and the best weapon that we have, <coughs> the best weapon we have is the crucified, risen, and returning Christ. Okay. <coughs> One other thought alongside of that, when you think about this passage we just studied, yes, we need to look to the cross of Christ as our redemption, which in Israel's day would have been the altar for them. The altar was that, and the altar they were, they were sacrificing day and night. They've already told us that. They got their eyes off that altar. Okay. <coughs> they did rest on God's word in the first couple of verses, but you know what there's a conspicuous absence of? Prayer. I don't see any prayer. And I think that that has something to do with their failure in these moments. So I think for us, we, we need to keep the cross in front of us. And we need to keep the word inside of us. And we need to kneel down at that bloody cross and spend time praying and asking God, change my desires, change my behaviors, give me a love for you because you love me. Amen? Let's stand. Father, as we close, ask God that you would bring us there to the foot of that bloody cross. Remind us of the power of the empty tomb and the hope that we have in he of heaven. <coughs> Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.